Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, host of the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I was about to hit the publish button on the second part of episode 29, which was all about White Dwarf, the RPG years, when the terribly sad news came through that Mike Brunton had suddenly passed away. Mike was very enthusiastic to appear on the Grog Pod. He liked listening to the podcast and to the, the reminiscences of his friends and colleagues from the 80s, such as Graham Davis, Mark Gascoigne and Ian Marsh. And he was keen to join in and share his experiences of working at TSR UK, apparently playing a part in every aspect of the company, and to describe his role as the Players' Rules Consultant and how he knocked Imagine Magazine into shape, telling us about his move to Games Workshop where he edited White Dwarf and acted as a general fixer for the design studio, culminating in his colossal work bringing the ideas of head honcho Brian Ansell alive in the Warhammer classic Realm of Chaos. He went on to develop Warhammer RPG with Graham Davis and Tony Auckland as Flame Publications before working in the computer games industry for many years, notably as the head writer on Total War. This podcast puts together the interview we had in its entirety as a celebration of his work in gaming, a tribute to what he brought to many through his hard work, imagination, diligence and great sense of fun. He'd recently returned to RPGs doing freelance editorial work. On social media, Andy Law, who's leading the Warhammer RPG development for Cubicle 7, said, We were working together on Enemy Within, speaking every Tuesday about life, the universe, and all the bloody run-on sentences. There's much I could say, but that can come later. For the moment, I'm in shock and filled with sadness, and my thoughts and best wishes go out to his family. Sam Webb, who's the head of RPG development at Modifius, sent me this. It's incredibly sad to hear that Mike's passed away suddenly. I had the pleasure of meeting Mike at Dragonmeat a couple of years ago, and his experience and down-to-earth nature lent a great deal to the quality of both our Star Trek adventures and John Carter of Mars tabletop RPG lines. Mike was always easy to work with, great to speak to, and always went over and above in his work with us. He'll be missed by the team, and our sympathies go out to his family and friends at this difficult time. It was Paul Coburn who worked with Mike back in the 1980s on Imagine Magazine and then at Games Workshop, who contacted me. Paul and I caught up just last night, and before the interview with Mike, here's a snippet of what we said. It was, and that was like about 15 minutes, 20 minutes after I'd heard. You know, you know Graham Davis, obviously. Yeah. Um, another of your alumni now put together a quick messenger group of like X Games Workshop and X TSR people. I don't know. He, he didn't explain how he'd heard, but he said that he'd heard instantly. There were like people you've not seen or spoken to for decades coming on. And there's no one, no one would have a bad word to say about Mike. You, you watch the sort of tributes that have just been coming out over the week. We should all want to be at the moment of our passing remembered like that. But the, the first few hours with just people going, but how's that, how's that possible? He's been chipping, you know, you and me were just talking about Brexit. Mike's been acerbically chipping in about Brexit increasingly over the last few months and just as funny and observant as ever. He just has this, he's got a, you know, he, he's always had this like, brilliant turn of phrase about him. And uh, yeah, he's like little... His Facebook uh, snippets on Brexit were just a delight because some leave, some Brexiter would say something crass and Mike would just go, bing. So, yeah, out of the blue, um, he'd been posting a couple of days before he passed. And, uh, and by all accounts, it was just like a, a an unexpected and massive heart attack. So uh, probably no great signs that it was coming. Maybe he felt a bit crooked the day before or who knows. But, yeah, uh, just a horrible shock. He, was, he had 
a lot of affectionate memories about that time of working together. So how how did that partnership work? How did you how did, how did you work together? Uh, um, Don Turnbull decided he wanted this thing and he didn't want to just be like uh, the British dragon. He wanted to do something, put one over on uh, Ian and Steve. So, you know, he, he wanted he wanted to out, outdo White Dwarf. So this ragtag, we were, we, were, we were the poor man's A-team. We really was kind of uh, a ragtag bunch of, of people were, put, were, were sort of thrown together to do this. Mike, as he explained in, in, in his interview was already working there because he'd done Tom Kirby and he was just, he was everything. Imagine as this ragtag uh, thing inherits Mike. Pretty much immediately, we just dropped into this, from particularly from my point of view, fabulous uh, working practice of, we'd get stuff in, I would say 60% of the content that we used that was native sourced UK came in speculatively. Um, the other 40% I'd have commissioned. So, you know, suddenly we come in and I'd go, I like this as a subject. I like the way this hangs together. Yeah, it might need a bit of editing, might need a bit of tying up. Mike, what do you think? And hand it over to him and Mike would just go, yeah, it's interesting, but these rules are rubbish. It almost felt like a stock letter would then go out from me going, yeah, we'll, we'll take this, we'll pay you so much, but we're going to rewrite this bit. Um, and then Mike would rewrite it. So Mike was brilliant, and we just did have a um, – we had such a cool working relationship that way. He was just um, he was just so kind of easy to get on with and so so quick to filling stuff in um, and, and, and making sure that the content hung together. Despite the fact – and we had this very much in common – he's not a rules lawyer as a gamer. He would sit there – if when, when you play with Mike – uh, and I think he said this in, in your interview, Ian, you know, there'd be an awful lot of leafing through the rule book and consulting the back of the DM screen and some dice would clatter. He wasn't paying attention to any of that. Um, Mike was just winging it. The first time I realised, A, that Mike was off the wall and B, that there was actually a lot to this role-playing that um, didn't involve these books and charts and tables and dice and stuff. Um Again, my memory's not 100% on this, but one of the things that was very cool uh, about being in Cambridge, being at the mill with, with TSR UK, we used to get loads of guests over from America and whatnot, and they were really cool. Uh, it's where my very strong friendship with Greg Stafford came from. Uh, Greg and I met up and kind of you know hung out, uh, and, and I thought, oh, this guy's so cool, and we hung out together for ages. Various other people came over. The person I think was involved in this particular anecdote is Sandy Peterson. And Sandy came over and ran a Call of Cthulhu one-off for the kind of gaming-orientated staff um, at, at TSL's mill. So we all kind of won lunchtime and afternoon, sat around a table, blah, blah, blah. Within nanoseconds, the entire thing had been derailed. Whatever Sandy had brought, whatever, you know, scenario he thought he was running utterly derailed because mike's kind of gone is there anybody watching us uh, and he's gone oh no there's nobody really there's a tramp over there in the corner so mike's character goes over and commits arson uh, to distract the tap the tramp and sandy's like what are you doing um and it's like well you know so suddenly we've been pursued by was this set in london i can't remember we've been pursued by the police anyway um and chased all over the place. Nothing at all to do with the scenario. Nothing at all to do with, you know, some Cthulhu-like nasty hanging around the corner who must have just been sitting there drumming his fingers on the, uh, drumming his tentacles on the tabletop going, so where are these investigators then? And I was like watching this and Mike was unashamedly seeing where this could go. If, if a GM's going to tell him, well, you know, you've got the freedom to do what you want, attack this scenario as you will, Mike's going to go, yeah, fine, then I'm going over here. And I, I watched that open mouth and awestruck going, oh, right. So it's not, the, it's not this other thing that the books tell you about going down dungeons and getting treasure after you've killed some orcs. It's this thing. That's, that's cool. He's very humble about his contribution. He says that, oh, I was just in the right place at the right time. But I get the sense from the stories that you told and the stories that he told, that he was just one of those people who got things done and put yeah. the industry in to just do the work and uh, achieve it. I know that you were pleased to see him when he turned up at Dwarf, weren't you? 
<laughs> yeah, Mike and I, um, we have laughed about this over the years. I wasn't taken on at Games Workshop to do White Dwarf, but as, you know, the unfolding story, as you've heard it from Ian Marsh and myself and, and Mike, suddenly Brian Ansell's looking at me across the table going, well, there's there's one in the can. There's the one that they um, that Ian and the crew sabotaged and then sent up to, the, to Nottingham. And he says, but then there's nothing. You'll have to do the next one. And then uh, there was the story of all of the missing materials. Uh, the van driver who was bringing all of White Dwarf stuff up from London lost all that. So there we were. Uh, in Nottingham, effectively starting a new magazine. And I was like, do we really want to do this again? And in the meantime, Brian Ansell had, he was already thinking ahead to um, Warhammer Roleplay, but Warhammer Battle in particular was kind of going through it. And he said, we need more creative staff. And, I've, and my answer immediately was, well, just steal the editorial stuff from TSR UK. We reached out to Jim Bambra and uh, Phil Gallagher, Graham Morris, and up with them, by default, comes Mike. And so uh, Graham Morris didn't didn't want to do it. The uh, Phil and Jim said, "Yeah, we'll come." And then this little idea is planted in the back of my head. Back of my head, I don't necessarily have to do White Dwarf, do I? I can't remember the number I did. It was like two or three. And then I just went, "Mike, this is going to be yours." Uh, and I'm going to recommend to Brian that he make you editor. And Mike kind of did give me a bit of a "Where's the catch?" look. And he brought that same "this will happen" attitude to it. That we we say in the uh, podcast that's going to that's going to follow this. That um, he oversaw really what was the second golden age of White Dwarf because the quality of the articles, as you say, the sheer professionalism of it, um, just took uh, uh, you know just a sudden increase under Mike's uh, watch. Yeah, for sure, absolutely. The one thing that we all knew from Imagine was that Mike would do a professional job of making sure that all of the articles were technically sound. Um, and he was a good enough editor. You know, you knew you weren't going to get typos and poor bits of grammar and what have you. So all of that was a given. Was it a given that he would be inventive and creative with the content of the magazine? Nobody knew. Um, but he was. Um he, like you say, it was a real, a real golden age, short period. It didn't last long because Brian's influence just grew and grew and the demands on, on White Dwarf to, to change its content style just got stronger and stronger. But for that interval, Mike put together great content, lovely balance in each issue. He was really good at that, covering kind of all the bases with different audiences, different kind of game styles and what have you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it was a yeah canny period. So Mike and I stayed in touch for a, a bit, um, but then that kind of faded away. So then there's a quite a lengthy chunk uh, where we're not in like, any kind of regular contact. That's re-established recently since I came to New Zealand, um, and we've just been chatting through Facebook and what have you. And uh, every now and again, something would happen. When when Greg Stafford died, Mike and I exchanged um through Facebook, uh, just kind of sharing our memories of, uh, of of hanging out with Greg. And yeah, just stuff like that. We Every now and again, and like I say, just recently, he's just been, he's been a goldmine of a cervic comment about uh, Brexit and the state of British politics. So it's just been, yeah, it's very cool just to uh, watch him. I think some of the other guys that were at workshop at the time were much closer to him in over the last uh, 10, 10, 15 years. People are deeply upset that you know they uh, tim pollard um w was was basically talking to mike twice a week on the phone and he's now like he's bereft and people are just gonna miss the man uh yeah hugely well thank you paul for sharing that with us yeah um thanks for doing it this way i was uh i was trying to think of how to do this and what to say um but uh I've heard, obviously, the thing that you're about to broadcast, um, the first part of, um, and listening to Mike's voice and, and the sheer pleasure he took in remembering good times and, and some interesting times for British gaming. Um, yeah, that, that was good. And he is going to be incredibly missed for his, his humour, his generosity, his skill, uh, and for just being a a really shit hot version of Mike Brunson. Um, yeah, we'll all, we're all going to miss the man. 
Welcome to Open Box, part of the podcast where we look backwards to look forwards. And this time I'm in the room of role-playing rambling with Mike Brunton, a familiar name from the heyday of RPGs. Hello, Mike. Hello, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for uh, joining us. No, you're welcome. And uh, we're going to go into this virtual time machine back uh, to way back in your past. So... (laughs) So the question I always ask to start off with is, how did you get into um, RPGs and who were you playing with? Uh, I got into RPGs completely by accident. Um, it, it literally was pure chance that I happened to pick up this strange little wooden pattern box in a shop called the Bradford Train Shop Supermarket. Uh, <laughs> and this would be in 75. It was a really strange shop. It was in a, a terraced house in Bradford. Downstairs was all model railways. Upstairs was all war games. So it was a very strange shop. They had a system where you could take things back and swap them, and they would give you vouchers if you spent a certain amount of money. And I bought a couple of sets of war games rules from them. And I went in again, and I just saw this box set, and I thought, oh, TSR, I've bought one of their games before. I bought um, something called Warriors of Mars, which was their um, fairly... Badly illustrated, I think, is the best way to describe it. Actually, the illustrations were appalling. Um, uh, John Carter title from 74. And I thought, well, it's going to be worth a punt. So I picked it up, bought it, and it was utterly confusing. <laughs> and it made no sense. What The original first edition D&D set made absolutely no sense whatsoever until you'd read it about 20 times. And then you began to see that there was something in there. It just hooked me if only in trying to find out how it worked. And I ended up, and this was what, 74, 75-ish? Probably 75. Didn't really play it that much until maybe 76, 77, when White Dwarf started, you know, just before White Dwarf appeared. And in 78, I went to college in Huddersfield, and there was a war game society in Huddersfield, which went by the splendid title of the Kirkley's Military Modelling and Gaming Society. And one of the guys who was there was a guy called Tom Kirby. Ah, Right, And that's where I really got started playing every week. And I ended up being one of the people, because I'd read the rule book, kind of got my head around how it worked. I ended up being people, one of the people who was a regular um, DM uh, at that. Tom, at that point, was a tax inspector of all things. And he got a job at TSR a couple of years later. And I ended up staying with the War Games Society and doing bits and pieces there. One of the job, one of the kind of wargaming jobs I ended up doing was painting Joyce soldiers and um, acting as the intro DM for everybody who joined the club. So I'd have the novices table, as it were, at the club, and, and run that. And, and what kind of games were they? And were they? they... That kind of... Well, it was, it was, it was, well, I see, at that point, there was, you, you, you had a massive choice of uh, Dungeons and Dragons, or Metamorphosis Alpha, or Tunnels and Trolls, or Traveller. And that was it. That was your games. And then later on, I mean, there were various... There were It was one of these periods where, a bit like being a medieval scholar, you could read the hot, every rule book in existence. You know, because there were only about 25 rule books in existence, you know? It yeah. Was, there was Empire of the Petal Throne, and then RuneQuest came along, and then Chivalry and Sorcery, and then Twilight 2000, and the Morrow Project, and all the rest of them. And you could end up with a big collection of games fairly quickly that covered everything, and have them all, because there weren't hundreds and hundreds of separate rule sets. So we ended up doing quite a lot of different things. But everybody tended to gravitate back to D&D because it was kind of the common thing. Yes. So there was a table of people, or at least three or four tables of people playing D&D and probably somebody playing Traveller every every week and every other weekend. I ended up getting into the business, as it were, purely by chance, because Tom remembered that I could paint toy soldiers. TSR needed somebody to paint some toy soldiers for some, for, for some adverts. The, the old, I don't know whether you ever saw them, D&D Grenadier miniatures. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so they sent me a box set and said, can you paint these and send them back? And I did. And then they wanted me to do some more. And after that, it it carried on like that. And then eventually they said, do you want a job? And I said, 
yeah. You know, doing what? And they went, well, painting some toy soldiers, uh, bits and pieces. And I went, yeah, okay, where do I sign up? And I was in. It was pure spawny chance. There was no no skill or judgment involved. It, it was luck rather than anything else, I think, looking back. Um, I would spend a couple of a day a week doing toy soldiers, which were then either used in adverts or given to shops or given to customers or whatever. And I also ended up doing things like running the invoicing system for the accounts department and answering the post. And I was the rules query guy for a while. Actually, for most of my career at TSR, I answered the rules queries. So if I screwed up your game and you're listening, I do apologize. <laughs> uh, um, I didn't mean to, but that, that was the kind of things I was doing. And then when Imagine came along, they needed somebody to go onto that to look after the um, the technical side of the articles. Technical side, so that's like um, statistics and stat blocks and making that kind sure, of thing. Yeah, making sure, the rule, making sure the rules are followed. TSL was going through one of these very weird phases where they suddenly got trademarks, so everything had to be trademarked. So, so you're the person who had to put the TMs on everything? Yeah, well, one of them. <laughs> it was. <laughs> there was an army that, of them. <laughs> there was, uh, there, there was a, a, basically, if you, if you, it was one of these things where you know you would get shouted at if you didn't put the, the trademarks on properly. Uh, because at that point, nobody really knew how serious trademarking and you know they, they knew that intellectual property was quite important, but they didn't quite know exactly what the rules were going to be. <laughs> so they were very cautious about it. Hence the the, the Indiana Jones thing of putting a TM on Nazis in yes. Indiana Jones, <laughs> which of course is the famous one that everybody now mocks. But they were what they were doing there is they knew that every name in the Indiana Jones game was a trademark of Lucasfilm, so they were protecting Lucasfilm, and they didn't think it through. <laughs> so it wasn't them being stupid it was them actually trying to do the right thing for by a by a, a business partner it, it ended up looking stupid so I, I i ended up doing a bit of everything you know at times i'd be sent down to the warehouse to pack orders and things like that you know it just it was just one of those jobs and, and you were a bit of a troubleshooter as well on the articles weren't you because i know that there's lots of stories of things being pulled at the last minute and uh that kind of thing. Well, so... there were there were a, there were a few problems with articles occasionally, down to the fact that I think it was early days and nobody knew what they were doing. You know, we were learning every issue, and all the writers were still learning every issue as well. They didn't, you know, things like the modules came out, and it was a big surprise to everybody what they were. I think people forget how groundbreaking things like the Giants modules were and the Drow modules. A, D, and D, and D, and D. And, and it were a big change. It was a step change. It was kind of like, oh, we've moved from just like little scribbled drawings on a bit of a bit of graph paper through to having something that looks like a serious product. So we would get things in, and sometimes they would be written in a very noty way because people had written them for their own use. And then that's not quite what you want to put on a page for somebody else to read because your notes make sense to you, but they won't make sense to anybody else. So we had to turn them into something that was kind of readable English and that the rules were followed properly. Um, because although nobody follows rules, if they're honest, they're just using them as guidelines and people roll the dice for the noise. I roll the dice for the noise if I ever run anything. I don't necessarily go with the numbers that are on the dice. I go with what's going to be dramatic and keep things moving. But the, the rules have to be right at the time of publication if you see what I mean. Um, so that needed somebody to go through and do things with, uh, which meant I ended up reading a lot of rule sets. Well, it, it's, it's interesting you, you say that because I always say that this period of RPG history is fascinating because that step change was taking place where people start to realise the potential of making stories rather than just, as you say, moving pieces around on the table. Yes, it's it moved from go in the room, kill everybody, get the treasure, go in the next room, kill everybody, get the treasure, to having a storyline where you were trying to find out what the hell was going on and who the real baddies were. And I think things like the uh, the British modules, in particular the U series and the UK ones, really raised the game on that. And so did things like Dragonlance as well, which had an epic sweep to it, which was a, was a first in a lot of ways. And some of the stuff we were doing in the magazine was interesting because we were, it was it was a small scale, so you could try things out. And if it went wrong, there was going to be another one along next month. And people would forget the bad ones, hopefully, and just remember the good ones. 
whether that's true or not, I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully they did forget the bad ones because there were one or two that I did looking back, which, you know, weren't great. Um, there were a couple that were quite good. So which are the ones that you, you're proudest of that appeared in Imagine? Um, I think the ones that worked best. I actually, I actually had to go back and look and find out what I did do on Imagine, by the way, before talking to you. Because uh, I had to do, I had to take on pseudonyms uh, at times. I was told your names. My favourite quote when I was working at work at uh, TSL was, "Your names appearing too bloody often in this magazine." <laughs> <laughs> that was from Keith. The mag- that was from Keith, the, the editor, uh, and he, he was getting a bit worried that he didn't look like we had a broad enough base of people. So, uh, so, so what were some of the uh, names that you used? Then? Well, actually, I found them. Uh, John Tantoblin. Um, a Tantoblin being a poo in medieval slang. Uh, <laughs> uh, I went on, I was, I was done on one as, as flashman on the, on the, the heading page. It was the, the, the thing about, Oh, guilty of court. Uh, yeah. And then right at the end, they gave me the correct credit, correct name credit. I never understood that one. And it turns out I had a hand in about, uh, 12 of them. Um, the best one I think was probably the Bushido one. Oh yes. Because yeah. it was very strange. And there were no undead in Japanese myth, but I managed to get an undead guy, undead guys in there, without violating Japanese myth. The dying words of a monk had cursed them, so they couldn't die. But they still took all the wounds that they were, that were going on, and they had to be stitched back together again with gold thread and things like that. Otherwise, they fell to pieces as the thread rotted. And it was a macabre set of imagery, really, of these guys held together with gold thread, samurai. Drinking, or trying to drink themselves to death in the hope of thinking, forgetting how bad everything had got. And it's it's a stra- it's a quite a disturbing image when you put it like that, but it, it worked. So I think that one worked. The one that was most fun was definitely getting a writing credit with Michael Moorcock. Yes, of course. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. That was... <laughs> I'm still, I am still chuffed about that. 30 years later, that I got, I got a very small writing credit with Michael Moorcock, you know, because that's just great. So how did that come about? Uh, that was down to Mr. Coburn. I uh, wanted to do... Uh, a Moorcock special and managed to get in touch with Moorcock's publishers, I think. And they weren't averse to the idea and proposed it to Moorcock. And he wasn't, he wasn't available at that point to actually write anything, but he gave us free use of one of his background worlds and sent us his notes, ah, which was the right. Earl Orbeck stuff. Yes. So we, we knew we had the, the, the use of that hero and we had to run past him with everything that we came up with or I came up with. And in the end, I don't think he asked for any changes at all. He was quite pleased with what we'd done, including all the artwork that Jess Goodwin, of all people, the bigger designer did back in the day, because he was he was starting out at that point as well, and he did some really nice, more cocky artwork. It is very good. It. It's, yeah, it's very good, yeah. It's a good scenario. I think I was really... And I got a nice letter from him in the end, actually, to say that he was, he was pleased with it, and he felt it had, it had done the character proud. So I was really pleased with that. Uh, it, I think that one worked best of all. I was just going to say it's good to hear that because you always get the sense with Moorcock that he has a bit of a love-hate relationship with the uh, hobby because of things that have happened later. I think he probably, I think he's probably like, uh, this is going to sound terrible, I think he's probably like a few older people, he doesn't maybe get it. It's just possible, you know, because <laughs> it is, he's a he's a, an extraordinarily good writer. I mean, you, you read... You read his mainstream fiction and it's brilliant. And you read his, his science fiction and his fantasy and it's it's how he was cranking out books at that rate when he was younger, I do not know. You know, it's it's incredible mind and energy in that man and his his inventiveness is superb. He didn't ever get diverted into that kind of hobby games world at all. Uh and now of course people are coming going the opposite way and coming out of it. People like Charles Stross started on White Dwarf, writing little articles for White Dwarf. Now, you know, he's writing the Laundry series novels. And there are others as well. And you, you can see from some people, some people's writing styles, that, yeah, you started playing D&D, didn't you? Yes. Yeah. You did, didn't you? You know, and it, it's kind of, there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's great that people draw inspiration from the, the whole sort of, it's, you could break out into a chorus of the circle of life at this point and go, <laughs> oh, look, you know, it's, <laughs> you know. Uh, it is that touch of, of kind of things go round and come round. So I'm not sure that Moorcock, I don't think he was well served by some of the games that came out based on his on his stuff. Some were great. Some of the uh, Chaosium stuff was really, really good. And some of it was kind of like, well, it's all right, but it doesn't look very good. You know, it's, it's like the content is there, but the presentation is not. It's not as good as it could be, should we say. 
I think she expressed unhappiness as well about how some of the Warhammer imagery borrowed heavily from from his work i think he's entitled to a little bit of that yeah i mean i i freely admit that i read an awful i read all of moorcock's books when you know in the 70s and 80s just did and i've you know still got a few more cooks on the shelf now he was certainly a background influence but then so was hp lovecraft and so was lord dunsany and so were to a lesser extent people like tolkien were as well so there's a whole bunch of stuff that feeds into warhammer and gets chewed up and spat out the other end of their sausage machine yeah oh as in all role-playing games you know we, we borrow freely don't we and uh reprocess mm. so that's part of the uh yeah yeah it just it just the way it works is that sometimes you put something down and you don't know where it's come from and then later on you'll see something and you think that's where it's from it's from that's that's that idea came from somewhere else you know a particular writer and it's not that you deliberately set out to copy it. It's just that it was in your head somewhere, lurking away. And it's true. I think that's true of anybody who's doing anything. I mean, you, you know, movies are notorious for borrowing and homage. And I think all role-playing games do little homages to everything. You yes. Know, there's, there's little definitely. bits in all role-playing games. And if you, you, you know, I can't say that I was never influenced by Moorcock because I must have been. Because he was my, you know, it was my favourite writer when I was a teenager growing up. Yeah. So, you know, I read Moorcock and Frank Herbert's Dune before I got to Lord of the Rings, which kind of spoiled Lord of the Rings for me a little bit because it wasn't brutal enough, you know? It's good to hear that because that was my experience as well. I read all the um, pulp of uh, Robert E. Howard and uh, Moorcock. Exactly, yeah. You know, with that action on every, every other page. And, uh... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know how uh, Robert E. Howard is a, a case in point. You know that surely is the biggest influence, and so is Edgar Rice Burroughs. But nobody ever credits him because he was there writing. I mean, Princess of Mars, nineteen twelve, it was published. So it's got to have had an influence on later stuff. It can't not. And it's like all the space opera stuff is E. e. Doc Smith. You know the, the Lensman series. It, it you know sp- space marines are mentioned in the Lensman books. You know there is these big hulking space marine guys all armed with boarding axes which is if you think about it completely insane for spaceships but sounds cool when you were Mm. doing this work on uh imagine the fanzine scene was in full swing you know uh gaming it was yes a guy called pete tamlin was our sort of fanzine correspondent if i remember rightly and mike lewis as well wasn't it yes yeah uh and mark gascoigne and ian marsh came out of the fanzine scene as well and 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 i've been looking back at some of the stuff that was uh, happening around that time and it and you mm-hmm. can see the debates around um they, they used to call them irvings and uh, monty hall and you know it this elevation of uh, something called role-playing rather than uh, you know constant fights yes yeah. yes constant fights or yes it was almost like there was two sides to the coin and you, you were either a role player or you were a hack and slash. Yeah. And there was, you know, what what, that, it, yeah, what occasionally gets referred to these days as murder hobos. Exactly. Yeah. Know, you, heard, yeah. you know, it's, it's kind of like, and I could never understand it because as far as I was concerned, if you were having fun, you were getting the point of games. You're not, you know, if you start going, oh, you're not playing that properly and holding your hand up to your forehead like some kind of fainting violet, then you've kind of missed the point of what you're doing. You're supposed to be having a bit of fun with your mates on a whatever evening it is with either a curry or a beer and, you know, and just enjoying yourselves. And I I never got this kind of one true purity thing that you had to, you know, you had to role play. Yes. Yeah, no, role playing is fine. It's great. You role play as much as you like. But remember that other people just want to go in and hack the head off an orc. That's what they're there. That's their idea of fun. It's like saying you, you can play Monopoly or you can play Monopoly where you've all got a knife. You know, and, it's like, and you're not playing one true Monopoly unless you've all got a knife or a gun at the table. And if somebody double crosses you, you can chop their fingers off. And yeah, it's kind of, no, that's not fun. Yeah, no. You know? I'm not playing Monopoly with you. No, no, it's, 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 <laughs> 
no, I I'm not allowed to play Monopoly with my other half because in her, her house it was definitely water the bread knife with Monopoly. You also made the transition from Imagine to White Dwarf. So how did that come about? Yes. Oh, no, that would be company politics partly, which I don't really want to go into too much. TSL got very weird towards the end of my tenure there in, in the sort of mid-80s period, 85-ish, because there was a lot of trouble with them running out of money in America and Mr. Gygax being eased out by various factions and the Blooms and the Gygaxes fighting. And then Lorraine Williams arrived and she was going to save the company and then she decided to get rid of Gary and oh, it all got very messy in America. And it was it was kind of a bit dramatic at times with the sweeping changes that were happening. Um, anyway, the UK was told to um, set money, and the way Don chose to that Don Turnbull, the guy who was running the company at the time, uh, chose to save money was to load as many costs as he could onto Imagine and then shut the magazine down. And uh, it must have looked brilliant on paper, but it meant that five of us lost our jobs. We all, you know, we finished issue thirty. We were called in and given the white envelopes. Um, we were all redundant, so I assume that redundancy meant redundancy so i said right okay i'm going to pub <laughs> and um i went well i've finished there you know i've just been given the thank you very much and so long and thanks for all the fish letter what then happened i'm told is that marketing department went where's mike and they all went he's gone well who's going to write the advertising because one of my other jobs i displaced the advertising agency that we were using and i was writing all the advertising for europe <laughs> at that point there was a sort of panicked he's gone to the pub well which pub we don't know so they dashed around looking at various pubs to try and find me and when they did find me i was sorry a little bit and i was dragged back and told that um, if i wanted it i could have a job so i stayed sacked for about three and a half hours <laughs> but this was this, this was terrible because everybody else was still given the bullet so i sat in the editorial office with four empty desks around me for oh months on end um Right, an advertising copy for people. Uh, Paul went off and started Games Master. That took about five or six issues, I think. We helped out on that a little bit, you know, sort of undercover, as it were, by I wrote a couple of things for him under a pseudonym. Um, other people did as well. Uh, TSL put some advertising his way. And then uh, the next thing that happened that moved everything on was Tom decided he was going. and He went to work for Games Workshop, um, which was quite weird because none of none of us realized that he'd been quite unhappy and then there was a small expedition mounted to nottingham by various people and i tagged along not expecting to find any out and everybody was offered jobs you know and I'd, I'd gone and i don't think they knew really who i was particularly because i wasn't one of the people who was writing rules material or module material i was just one of the guys who happened to be at the tsr offices and did various jobs for them so i ended up going to the studio i ended up getting a job at the studio and I started as uh, assistant white dwarf editor, which wasn't an entirely necessary post, shall we say. I mean, if Paul had carried on being the editor, it would have, you know, he could have done it all on his own. Um, but what happened was Paul saw me arrive, grinned from ear to ear and virtually skipped off down the corridor to find something much more interesting to do than have to get a magazine out every month. So uh, I, I don't blame him at all because he immediately got to do much more. He got to do more interesting things like... Um, trying to find board games and and, uh, and major publishing things to do. And I uh, I took over from the on the magazine. And uh, it was again luck, I think, really. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't a formal interview process in that sense, other than Brian going, Oh yeah I think Brian knew me because I'd painted toy soldiers for a few years and I knew him through Citadel and getting getting you know, getting model soldiers off it. Beyond that, I don't really think they knew who, who I was or what I could do particularly other than I'd had a job at TSR so I must have been okay because they wouldn't have kept me on otherwise I ended up working for workshop for what about four years four and a half five years left in the end of 90 and, and during that period um, White Dwarf changed mm. didn't it quite significantly it, it, it became bigger yes, and uh, covered more games and had a well, different a appearance re- yeah there were quite a lot of things went on the first thing was that the move from London had not been without problems all the staff who'd been in the production offices in London 
there was only about two of them came up to Nottingham, which was Jervis Johnson and Mark Gascoigne, and everybody else took redundancy. It, it wasn't a happy parting for one or two people. So I came in, and there was a, a, a the move to look, the move up to Nottingham had basically been that the room where White Dwarf was put together had been emptied and then dumped in Nottingham. All the material had been dumped in Nottingham, so there were stacks and stacks of manuscripts. One of which was very close to hitting the ceiling. No kind of organisation at all. Paul had been brought in and had basically been asked to get a magazine out the door as quickly as possible. So he'd been firefighting. And I looked at this pile and decided the only way to do it was to be quite merciless on a kind of, you know, a triage level almost of, of killing articles or putting them inside if they were rescuable or if they were usable, getting them ready for publication as quickly as possible, which is why when I took over, there was a bit more of a spread of games because I was going with what I'd got. Um, and there were certain reliable people you could you knew were going to be great. You know, if you got an article from Marcus Rowland, it was not a problem. You knew it was going to be usable. And there were a few others like that. But um, there was an awful lot of stuff in there that was, uh, you know, my latest version of uh, a completely obscure D&D class where it was so their idea that you couldn't really t you know you know the kind of fairy thief or the whatever it was but it wasn't going to be suitable for publication because it just it didn't grab you you know the the thing with it with the, with the magazine article is if you haven't got people by the end of the first paragraph they're never going to read any further the, the second thing that happened was yeah. that games workshop moving to nottingham it was always portrayed as a merger of games workshops and citadel but it was really a citadel takeover in practical terms um so they wanted a monthly catalogue right from almost from the get-go so which is why there's all of this sudden there's this many many more figure adverts and all the rest of it which is fair enough i mean they were spending a lot of money putting a magazine out every month so they they needed to get a bang from the book there were a number of, of game titles that were coming out games workshop were starting to print chaosium products um and they weren't printing D, &D stuff anymore they'd still got some D, D stock in but they were printing chaosium they had they were still carrying products by people like West End and there were a couple more and I'm trying to remember who it was because there were some very strange products for Games Workshop on the shelves at one point. Things like um, World War II Hex War games like Panzer Leader and things like that which were kind of not what you not what you expect a Games Workshop to carry but um, they were part of the whole product line that other people were giving them to work on. So there was a good bunch of stuff to go at in terms of Chaosium because Chaosium gave you RuneQuest and Call of Cthulhu and Game Designers Workshop as well, they were still importing. So that gave you Traveller and a few other things. So all of these lines had to be supported sometimes. And there was Games Workshop's own internal stuff like Golden Heroes and Dread and all that had to have something in there sometimes. So that was one of the things was I, I had a kind of chart where I would tick off, you know, I've had three Paranoia pieces and I want a Judge Dread bit and now I want some AD&D stuff as well. And then I get Warhammer Roleplay added to the mix. So I've got to have a new line on the chart. It didn't matter what i covered people would moan about it there was either too much too little <laughs> i'd been banging on about something too often i hadn't been you know i hadn't given anything about judge dread it, it it was one of these ones where you couldn't win and you knew you were getting it wrong when you got two letters in both written in that kind of really angry green ink one of you telling you you're a complete swine <laughs> for putting in too much Judge Dread, and the next one will be the same angry green ink going, "You've not had any Judge Dread in for months, you." And it was kind of well, okay, I've got the balance about right then, because if that if they're both hating me, it must be about right. So there were a lot of games to cover, and it, yes, it did change, and then it changed again towards the end of my time, just when I felt I'd got the whole system set up to. I'd, I'd managed to get it to the point where I was putting extra articles through every month and getting the pages laid out and everything so that I had, effectively, a couple of spare white dwarves in stock should anything go wrong. Um, it sounds a bit weird, but I knew that, you know, you've got 84-page magazine. You know that 24 or 36 pages of that is going to be advertising content. You know that you're going to have so many 8-page and 4-page and 2-page articles. So I was creating these article banks of different bits so i could just literally go right i want 16 pages of content that one that one and that one wallop um just in case anything went wrong it sounds a bit weird but <clears throat> sometimes stuff didn't turn on time um sometimes figures weren't painted so they weren't finished or you know in time for the photography work or and it's not anybody's fault it's just the way you know people people were working hard and sometimes they just couldn't finish because there was not enough time I got it to the point where I had all these articles ready to go and I had 
probably three or four article issues worth of stuff spare. And they came in and said, that's it, we're not covering anything other than Games Workshop products. And I went, oh, right, okay, so all that extra work I've put in has been for nowt. <laughs> that's grand. All those D&D articles, I've got about six D&D articles, I've got some Chaosium stuff, I've got Call of Cthulhu, I've got Paranoia, and I've got this, I've got that, and it's all going to have to just disappear. And I was a bit cross. I was told that I could either like it or lump it, so in the end, and just went with stupid, stupid decision. You'll kill the circulation if you just drop everything other than workshop stuff. And I went, if you feel like that, you're not the editor anymore. I was like, oh, right, okay. And Sean got the job. And unfortunately, I was partly right in that circulation did drop uh, after they moved to just GW stuff. But they were right because they managed to survive for another 300 issues. I was probably being too much of a gamer rather than a, a business-headed editor, if you see what I mean. You know, at the end of the day, work, Workshop published White Dwarf not out of the goodness of their hearts, but to help sell their games. And like all companies publish gaming material, they don't. You know, the magazines are sold to, to act as a shop window. Um, it sounds mercenary and horrible, but it's a necessary thing. It's like websites now. They're there to you know persuade you that you want this stuff doing dwarf was a big exercise every month it took what 10 or 15 people to get it pasted up over the course of a week and um this is in the days before desktop publishing so it is a slow process getting anything done you know because you've got a typesetting machine you've got guy you've got graphic designers you've got layout artists it doesn't just happen on screen it's actually somebody sitting down physically with bits of paper and gluing it down and taking a big photograph to turn it into a lithic you know, a lithographic plate, or a photo, you know, um, for photo printing, it, it's it's a big job, and it's expensive. So I can see why they did it. It's not. I'm not grumbling about it. They were, you know, perfectly entitled. Um, and I was perfectly entitled in my book to go. I've done all that work. It's gone to pot. Then. So you know, they were right. I was came in second. Over over the time that you were there, I mean, when when I look back, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm nostalgic for the white dwarfs of the early '80s, but. Really, when you look at the content, it's quite thin. It was during your tenure that it, you get the really chunky scenarios and really big articles. You know, they're the ones that I probably turn to now to use. And of course, you were there at the time when Warhammer Fantasy Roleplaying was being launched, weren't you? And doing stuff with that. Yes. Well, Jim Bamra and Phil Gallagher had moved with just shortly before I had. From they they were at TSL with me, and they came in to help Graham finish off uh, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay before it finished Graham, because uh, he was he was working hard. I mean, that's a it's a big book to do on your own. Before that, it had come out of Hal, Richard Halliwell's head, and Rick Priestley's, and they were very definitely figure wargamers rather than roleplayers. So they approached it as a figure wargame thing, which is why, for example, a lot of the skills and traits, you either have them or you don't, because that's a very wargamey figure thing it's not you know there's no there's no kind of like oh well you've got you've got hit people with a sword 50 percent you you can either hit people with a sword or you can't you know you can either do you know you either know about dwarfish law you don't know dwarfish law and then you can get a bit better at it later which is a role-playing kind of approach isn't it mm. yeah if you see the distinction um you know you have a you have a you have a skill and you have a number they just had a skill so that that was kind of a, a an old system to have but it, it, yeah Rob, we were i was lucky in, in putting Dwarf together, in that, yeah, I'd got people like Jim and Phil and Graham and Hal and Rick and Jervis and Marco sat in down the corridor from me, and they, you know, if you went and asked really polite, they might write you something. <laughs> <laughs> but there were lots of people out there who were also writing really good stuff at the time as well. So, you know, the Marcus Rollins of this world, these people would, would send interesting, chunky articles that I found interesting to read, and therefore I would tend... To, to put them in because I thought they were good. Um, Carl Sargent used to write stuff, which in terms of writing magazine articles, Carl was really good at that stuff. He could write really quickly, write very wittily. And, and you know, some of the ones he, he did a, an article about insanity in Cthulhu, which was great. All these different insanities. And he, he, he'd write very well. But longer stuff, he would be harder work to, to tidy up after. Mm. See, he, he could he could he, he wrote in a stream of consciousness way 
which meant that occasionally you would come across pages where it was an eight-page sentence and there would be seven levels of brackets inside these, you know, and you'd have to work. And it was kind of like, I know he's going somewhere with this, but I've no idea what this sentence means. Different people, different things. Well, some good big chunky articles in there. You're right looking back. It was a good time to be there, though, because Warhammer Roleplay launched and... 40k launched and that had role-playing aspects in it in that it did have there was the implication that you could use a games master mm-hmm. in that and people did when they were playing they got involved in their troops and were you know kind of oh no it's going to run away now because of this but and the other one and we were going through iterations of new toy soldiers which all had to have content for the games which made them interesting uh you know because there's no point producing a toy soldier if nobody's going to sounds terrible no point making the toy soldier if nobody's going to buy it and they'll only buy it if it's interesting in game terms they won't buy it because it looks cool necessarily they want it to do something cool on the in the game or in the battlefield or in the role-playing product and that meant that there was a a constant driver in particular for people like graham who turned out to be an absolute genius at writing little bits of text and stat boxes for the backs of the blister packs and adverts and short articles he could i mean he just turned it out amazing you know and he'd sit down and talk to the figure designers and find out what they wanted out of their toy soldiers and what they thought they were gonna and just do it i mean all of a skill like that because he he was really good at being able to just whack you know thousand words and i have to sit and think about it for half a day before i can write that word sometimes or longer <laughs> when um when we talk about uh, warhammer uh, fantasy ball playing it's 30 yep. 30 years of uh, Realm of it Chaos. Is. Yes, yes, I know. Um, terrifying, isn't it? <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of patient zero for all that chaos spiky death. <laughs> um, yeah, 30 years since Realm of Chaos came out. It's a long time, and it's had quite a big influence, I feel. In particular, it seems to have had more influence over roleplay and 40K than it has over Fantasy Battle, at least recently, because, of course, They've rebooted Fantasy Battle as Age of Sigma. Abandoned, well, reboot, abandoned, call it what you will. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting because I had no idea at the time when I was writing it it was going to last. As far as I was concerned, it was a product that needed to be done. I was um, Brian's ghostwriter, effectively. The way it was done was various people had had a go at trying to get the ideas in Brian's head down on paper. So Graham was the last one to um, have the package that was quietly ticking away. When I take off Dwarf, I got put on that, um, having done a bit of general games editing around the place. So, for example, uh, just before that, I'm f- I can't remember the exact sequence, whether or not which, which, which happened first, but I definitely edited The Fury of Dracula Rules in 24 hours. It was one of these things where all of a sudden everything had to change because the rules had been written in a particular style and it wasn't what was wanted any longer. And it was supposed to be going to the printers, so could I rewrite them, please? Off I went in my usual silly way to do it over the course of a weekend. So I, I lost I lost a weekend to Fury of Dracula. So with, with Realm of Chaos, what would happen is that Brian would... We'd sit down with Brian, or I'd sit down with Brian, for an hour's long chat at the start of the week, and then I would go away and write up all, a whole lot of stuff and give it to him on sort of Friday-ish or Thursday-ish. And then Monday we would sit down again. And we'd either rewrite what had just happened or we'd move on to the next section. He'd, he'd always, you know, it was kind of difficult sometimes getting into his headspace of what he wanted because he, it was one of these projects where it was, he thought it was going to be very important to the company. And he was right on that. I wasn't so sure. I just thought it was going to be another rule book, a bit like the, the Siege book that had been done um, or, you know, the Army Lists. I thought it would come out. People would buy it and then they'd move on on the next edition. You know, it was essentially that kind of product and that kind of timescale to it. It wasn't going to last more than a year, maybe two years. It went through this process of Brian going, I want this in it. I want that in it. And it would sometimes it'd be incredibly, it was incredibly vague in places. It was like, go away and work out how you get a Chaos Champion. And other bits were really detailed. He wanted where it was anything to do with it. He, he was a very, Brian's got a very um, hat. I'm assuming he still has when I haven't talked to him for ages. But he had a really a mind that was very good at concrete detail. Um, so, for example, he knew exactly what he wanted 
for the toy soldiers, but he was less clear about what he wanted for the background. Mm. Um, you know, because he, he he concentrated on the war game side of things and the the models. So he could give you chapter and verse on on what the models were, but he was less worried about how they might fit into a bigger universe. So I got some I got some fairly strange freedoms in what I could do on stuff. Uh, you know, nobody nobody worried about how it was all going to hang together, which I would have thought would have probably explains why it's contradictory in places because I'd write one lot of stuff and then move on and then six months later I'd come back and think, oh God, I said that back there and that, that's been... Let's pretend I didn't say that and just carry on this way. And um, So some of it some of it logically doesn't make sense. I know that. I know that. But it was such a big project and it was such a time-pressured one because it was Brian's baby and he was the MD and you you don't argue with the managing director really do you at the end of the day you know not if you you know well you do but you don't you don't win um on that i've heard a lot of war stories of working with brian but everybody it's undeniable i think everybody has compliments his creativity and his imagination yes absolutely um my, my impression of brian is providing you were straight with him he was going to be straight with you if you messed him about, then you know you were going to be in trouble. But if you didn't, you never were. Um, you, 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 you know, you were in his good guy books because you, you know, you tried to do your best and, and be honest about it. And you could disagree with him if you had a good reason, and he'd listen. And not everybody at tops of companies will do that. I mean, he wouldn't always, he wouldn't always go along with you. But the head, you might disagree about something, and he'd know something else that was going to happen in six weeks' time that was going to make a huge difference. Yeah, he was very, he is, was, is very creative. You know, he. he 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 wanted good stuff out and was willing to and was equally willing to help anybody who also wanted to do a good job yeah i know other people did find him hard going but i think that was because he was basically a blunt plain speaking kind of chap you know he, he, if if he thought you were a, an idiot he'd probably tell you um and a lot of people found that a bit intimidating i think he, he wasn't one to suffer fools gladly Let's uh, let's fast forward to the present and what mm-hmm. you do now. So you've kindly given me your uh, CV, and I can see that <laughs> you're, you're still working hard in the uh, industry. I don't know whether does it count as hard work. My mum never thinks I've got a proper job. <laughs> she refuses to accept this is a proper job at all, and hasn't for donkey's years. Yeah, I I moved on, and and after after Flame, um, well, Graham and I and Tony Ackland were Flame for a co- about eighteen months, and we did all the Warhammer stuff. And then Graham decided he wanted to go to America as a change. And that made me look around and think this isn't necessary. I couldn't work out what the next bit at workshop was for me, if you see what I mean, after Flame. And um, I ended up going into the, um, the computer games business, working for Microprose, then moved on and did some freelancing. And I'm a freelancer again now, having spent 10 plus years on Total War games, which was fun and interesting at the time but i got to the point where i really because it emerged that i could write sentences fairly quickly and most of them made sense i ended up doing all the writing work or most of the writing work on a couple of products and then having a writing team by the end of it if i ever saw another description of a spearman again i was going to scream because there's only so many ways that you can say this is a man armed with a spear and carrying a shield and by the and if you've got a game like Rome Total War, nearly everybody is a spearman of one sort or another. And it gets to the point where you think, I can't say anything different about a spearman now. I've, I've said it all. I'm going slightly mad now. Oh, look, it's a man with a spear. It's a man with a different spear. It's a man with a slightly different shaped shield. Gosh, that is exciting, isn't it? This is a man who's got a picture of an elephant on his shield. Um, it's that, that sounds, it sounds, it, so, that is such a first world problem to have that you've literally, I, I literally got to the point of thinking, I can't write any more on this stuff. A couple of million words, it was a couple of million words later. The only reason to know that is because I saw how much it cost to translate and that was done by the word. <laughs> it, was, it was terrifying how much money I was spending just on translating uh, for the company anyway. Um, so yeah, I've ended up doing different bits of uh, i ended up writing dialogue for a few games and things like that so uh the uh relic got me in to write some british dialogue for company of heroes 2 and they, and it was a it, that was the strangest writing gig i've ever had because i'd write this stuff and i'd send it off to them and they go can you put some more swearing in and what yeah we want more swearing so i'd write and put it in more swearing and send it off to them and go, yeah that's good can we have some more swearing and i put some more and send it back to them <laughs> 
yeah, that's we're nearly there. Let's have some more, you know. And in the, it was like trying to write an episode of, of the thick of it, you know, one or two <laughs> cases. So, so writing dialogue stuff was quite cool, and I'm designing characters for games and writing the dialogue goes with them. And I'm now, strangely enough, getting back into role playing stuff and, and working on that again. So I, I, I ended up doing the editing on uh, Odyssey of the Dragon Lords. If you've seen that on Kickstarter. Oh yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah big fifth edition book. And it's huge. It's about one hundred and fifty thousand words. So I, um, I did the, I did the, the editing pass on that for the guys at uh, Arcanum, and that was quite interesting. It's quite interesting going back to fifth edition D and D and seeing that that doesn't look like D and D anymore because I hadn't really kept up with the various editions of D and D because it's just roll the dice for the noise. Remember, you know the rules are there, but you don't, you know. I'd also done some work for Modiphius as well on a couple of their titles. Uh, I've done done some editing on their star trek oh yes we're playing that at the moment actually yeah yeah well the the, the operations book and the um uh the science the, basically the three books the red blue and yellow shirt books yeah. effectively I, I i did the editing pass on those and uh, a lot of the star trek stuff i think it was quite interesting um it was it was nice to work on a you know um, my, my sons were particularly chuffed when I'd finished it I could tell them what I'd been working on it was uh, it's like ah oh, you've been working on Star Trek ah oh, <laughs> so cool um, <laughs> you know it, it's it's kind of one of those recognisable ones that you know they were chuffed to bits with and um, I also had a, a crack at their um, John Carter rules as well did a little bit of editing on that and I quite like Modiphius's 2D20 system it could be better explained in their rule books but that's a different problem but the basic system is actually not 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 too shabby at all yes it works quite well um, in terms of just giving enough feel that you don't feel like the dice are trying to kill you that players can feel like they're getting a fair shake and do you still play regularly? I play board games these days, and I, I play a, a lot of PC games. Too many PC games, some would argue. I can, I can, some of them are time sinks. I have to be very disciplined not to buy Civilization, for example, when it comes out. Uh, oh, I, I, well, I, I, I realised that there was a, a BAFTA thing a while back, and they went, what's your coolest moment in, game, in, in video games? And I sat and thought about this for 10 seconds, then I thought, oh, and I just replied to the tweet, and I just said, getting a copy of Civ 1 with the words Civ 1 in Sid's handwriting Sid Meier's handwriting on the three and a half inch floppy disk before it came out and play testing it before it arrived because I was as it so happened I worked in Baltimore for a a short time um, with Microprose and Sid was working on Civilization at that point and sort of here have a go at this tell me what you think that was cool Wow, that is amazing. Yeah, <laughs> that was cool. And I mean, you know, so um, yeah, and, and I've I've got to be careful on things like, for example, I started playing XCOM, the latest iteration of XCOM, and suddenly thought, God damn me, I was working on this boobly boo years ago as well, <laughs> um, and I must not play this so many hours. And then I realised, sort of, several hours later, that I was still playing it. It's easy to sink your time into them. I still paint toy soldiers really badly occasionally now. Um, I, my skills have got very rubbishy over the years because I haven't done it. I had to talk 20 years off in the middle where I was busy living and trying to pay a mortgage and things. I play board games and I, I love good board games these days. Um, some of them are, the, the quality of board games has gone up tremendously in the last 10 years. Uh, just the, the actual rules quality and the physical quality and everything else, it's just gone through the roof. It's, it's you know, there's some really good games out there that thoroughly enjoyable. Uh, but role-playing products, I don't play as much as I should do, probably. My eldest is now getting into role-playing himself, but I'm having absolutely nothing to do with that because he doesn't need to be embarrassed by his dad. <laughs> absolutely. And so what's he playing? <laughs> what's he playing? He, he, he's playing in D with his mates at school. Yeah. Which is great. Um, you know, it's fine, and they're playing a fairly freeform sort of D and D. I think that they would probably fall into the murder hobo category of players uh, rather than the serious role players. Uh, you know, it is very much kind of like get the treasure, run away, divide it up, go back, get some more treasure. But they're having. But the important thing is they're doing what everybody in games is supposed to be doing, which is having some fun. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and I think that's the. You know, if you're not having fun, then you know, 
you can have fun as in your own way. I am not fussed by anybody having fun in their own way. If you want to be a role player, you go for it. You have a really good time role playing your character. And I've played with people who are utterly serious role players and have a brilliant evening of playing a character to the hilt. Um, and it's great to see because that they're involved and completely taken out of themselves and their everyday problems. And when they've finished, they've had a great time. You know, uh, Jim Bamber used to be very, very, very role play. Um, he was Call of Cthulhu and, you know, he would go for Call of Cthulhu and Chivalry and Sorcery. And that's Chaosium King Arthur game. Pendragon. Thank you, Pendragon. Yeah. That was one of the ones he loved um, because it was the background and the feel of it. Um, and, you know, that kind of role-playing intensity is, is great for people. It, it, it's fun. It's what, you know, your fun is your fun. Um, I think the hobby now is probably in a better condition than it's been for donkeys. Uh, it's certainly better that there are more women involved in it um, on both playing and production side of things. I think that's great uh, because it's, you know, it's a whole new set of people to have fun with. You know, there was kind of like a 50% divide at one point. If you're a bloke or a boy, you were playing d and If you're a girl, no, thank you. Yeah. Off your pop. You know, and it, it's, it's ridiculous. It's a, you know, um, looking back, it was mad because, um, you know, I think role play. I think it's great. It's a great social leveler and um, dissolver of barriers. Role playing at the end of the day, because you're all the same. You've all got you've all got your piece of paper and your pen and your handful of dice and your brain and your imagination, and the rest of it is. You know, you enjoy yourself. Go anywhere you like. You can go do anything you want. The rules are there to make sure that you don't break the bar. You don't break the fourth wall, as it were. Um, You know, the narrative thing. Um, And role playing is just fun for folk. Yeah. At the end of the day, and that's what it should be. And I think sometimes. I think some of the some of the people who get very precious about it, I think they've forgotten that the fun it's it's fun, you know. Yeah. yeah. Unless you've got a very strange definition of fun. <laughs> well it's been brilliant listening to your stories of how you shaped uh, the hobby to what it is well, now. I, I, well, I don't know whether I did. I think other people did and I was lucky enough to be there. <laughs> uh, that's the way I look at it. I think I, I think it was luck in my case. Uh, and I I genuinely think i've been very lucky with a lot of the people i've worked with you know looking back uh the grahams you know a lot of the people that i worked with it it's not a sometimes it's not a good thing for um imposter syndrome because you suddenly think i'm a really thick one in this room you know (laughs) (laughs) when when you're dealing with some people you really do think that i mean you know when you when you're listening when you're dealing with like richard halliwell was an errant genius but god he was bright you yeah. know, yeah. Rick Priestley, equally intelligent. Um, you know, uh, and you just think, yeah, okay. I'm not entirely sure I should be here, really, because <laughs> you know, I've fallen into this by accident. Um, but it's cool. I'll carry on. Yeah, they haven't, they haven't caught me yet. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, Mike. You're very welcome. Thank All right. You. Thank you. Adios, amigo.